don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello and welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 42. Today Jackie we're... Robinson. Yes. And today we are talking about 2000's Aaron Brockovich, directed by Steven Soderbergh. And we're going to talk a lot about um, Julia Roberts and how I think she has somehow become underrated, kind of. But Steven Soderbergh, I was telling you before we started recording that I kind of accidentally did a double feature of his where I watched The Laundromat and Aaron Brockovich on the same day. And it kind of led me to realize that I think I'm a big Steven Soderbergh fan. I think he's like... A, a director that I really like, you know, I'd never yeah, really it's, knew it's that. It's between, I mean, his his sort of magnum opus. It's between Aaron Brockovich and Ocean's Twelve, really. <laughs> yeah, the, I think the the critics would agree with you. Um, <laughs> but I was just kind of looking at his filmography, and I've seen a lot of these movies, uh, even if I wasn't completely aware that they were Soderbergh movies, or I forgot about it, like Logan Lucky. Kind of oh, forgot yeah. he did that, and it's sort of like an Ocean's Eleven type heist movie. But it, I thought uh, it was apparently really good. he like retired and then came out of retirement, even though he's yeah. not that old. He learned about that Netflix money and came back. Yeah, uh, but he—I so. mean, if you look at the stuff he's done, he's kind of his big thing, which comes into play in Aaron Brockovich, is kind of corruption and bureaucracy and dark money and stuff like that. Uh, but he's kind of been all over the place. He did Contagion, which I liked. Like Magic Mike was great. Um, Side Effects was like a weirdly good movie. Um, just kind of the Ocean's movies weren't bad like the original the, the Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, the first, you know, Ocean's Eleven that he did was just a cool, you know. Yeah. It's it's candy, but it's tasty. And then, of course, um, like Aaron Brockovich and Traffic in the same year, which is yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really liked uh, this is the first time I'd seen Aaron Brockovich somehow and I really liked it Although my main criticism is that I think it would have been better had they had a male lead <laughs> With his balls hanging out and he's like, I think I look nice <laughs> um, I told Jensen I was gonna say that first thing she was like, <laughs> Got her you're an asshole <laughs> uh, No, but I mean Julie Roberts like I was saying I think she is kind of like weirdly come back around to being underrated sort of because i was watching this and we think of her as like romantic comedies and uh pretty my best friend's wedding yeah pretty mona lisa smile which is like later julia um but watching this like she's really good like i think she's a talented actress on top of being an incredibly famous actress which does they don't always line up like that for me she'll always be tinkerbell and hook Fair enough. So, uh, but like lately, she's been doing these weird sort of almost indie movies, and also like the Smurfs, um, and then the the show Homecoming on Amazon that we were talking about earlier that mm-hmm. I, you haven't seen yet, but I really enjoyed. And she's getting paid like a billion dollars an episode or something, uh, but it's worth watching if you're into like mysterious sort of sci-fi type stuff. Hmm. Yeah, it got uh, really good reviews, I remember. But in this film, she is, uh, you know, just a powder keg, powerhouse of uh, not giving a fuck energy, getting stuff done in her push-up bra on her heels. 
mm-hmm. which I remember when I was when this movie came out. So I would have been still pretty young. Um, that's kind of all people talked about was have you seen what she looks like? Which kind of proves the movie's point of her being kind of looked at only for her dress and her physical appearance. Right. Here's a story about a giant corporation poisoning people and they want to talk about, you know, the person pointing their finger at this grave injustice uh, and they want to, you know, talk about what the person pointing is wearing. Yeah. Uh, And and I I think that's, you know, I mentioned earlier that sort of Soderbergh's forte is this kind of movie it's kind of funny because the the laundromat is also like that the laundromat is a lot like the big short except it's about uh, the panama papers instead of the housing crisis and uh uh, financial collapse but it's it's a very similar kind of movie but more comedic kind of i guess well i don't know they they have a similar kind of tone at any rate we're not talking about that movie uh but did you see have you seen che soderbergh's uh no i I'm glad you brought that up because when I was looking at his filmography, I was like, how have I never got around to this? I have like the, the beautiful criterion, uh, of that, of both of those, you know, part one and part two. And I've never, I've owned it for years and I've just never watched it. <laughs> it's, it's probably cause it's like six hours long. Yeah. And the, the reviews were pretty mixed. Uh, but I think it'd be worth watching. Del Toro's yeah. great usually. So, yeah. Yeah. But I feel like, oh, Soderbergh got his start in like the late 80s. His mm-hmm. like breakout thing was Sex, Lies and Videotape, which is a very cool movie if you haven't seen it. With uh, Robert California. Andy, I can't remember his real name. James Spader. James Spader, and yeah. Andy McDowell. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. Is Andy McDowell I, the the actress that was in Michael? Was that Andy McDowell? Or is that somebody I, else? I think it is. Yeah. Yeah, 90s classic Michael starring John Travolta. Groundhog Day. Yeah, Travolta did Michael and uh, Phenomenon back to back, and I saw those both in the theater. I think we've talked about this, how it's kind of weird that those were back to back when they were kind of similarly like these metaphysical kind of sort of spiritual. It's like Travolta's spiritual phase. Maybe the Criterion app will have a double feature of. Travolta's (laughs) Travolta's <laughs> spiritual phase, Michael and it'll it'll be uh, a trilogy phenomenon. of uh, Michael phenomenon and Battlefield Earth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, Aaron Brockovich, uh, like a uh, keep sort of hovering around. So Soderbergh tackles these kind of controversy, uh, you know, big guy shitting on the little guy type of films. And one thing I noticed, and, and this is kind of a change in American society and therefore in like American art, is that, you know, Aaron Brockovich is 2000, pre-9-11, pre-financial collapse. We're coming right out of the 90s, where, which was a sort of like different kind of vibe, different kind of time. And so in Aaron Brockovich, it was really refreshing to see for once uh, the, the good guys kind of win, even though win is a loaded term there. Uh, yeah. But... The, the laundromat, which came out last year, so 2019, is kind of the opposite, where at the ending it's like, oh, by the way, these people will never suffer real consequences and this will just keep happening forever. Um, sort of like the big short does. Yeah. And it, it's sort of it, <laughs> really depressing to see that kind of change, where anymore it's really hard to get a movie where 
the people who wrong the the little guy suffer any kind of consequences. Right, and w- that's based on a true story, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, definitely. That and yeah, the true story part makes it even more compelling that they actually win in the end. Yeah, I was reading that in Aaron Brockovich, really the the liberties taken were were kind of minor, and and most of like the facts of the case that you hear are, are pretty pretty true to life. Well, that's good. <laughs> so yeah. So it's nice that this is essentially essentially the truth. Yeah, um, and apparently Aaron Brockovich has a cameo in the film, like as the yeah, waitress, she's the waitress, which I, I didn't know. But just kind of talking about the, um, we'll come back around to the plot, but like the rest of the cast, I thought Albert Finney was awesome. Yeah, um, that was great. Although at first I was like. I couldn't remember his name, and the only name I could think of was Rip Torn. And I was like, that's not Rip Torn. <laughs> um, and then Aaron Eckhart, I think, is fine, but he has the most just dog shit, scumbag facial hair in this movie. Well, see, see, you're you're doing the you're doing the thing that uh, other people are doing about the woman to the man. I, yeah, I know, but it's just like he looks so ridiculous the whole movie. <laughs> And he's wearing his like. It's because you know that normally Aaron Eckhart is like this, you know, heartthrob, yeah. and he just, you know, it's kind of silly that he's made himself look like this. And, and so he looks, you know, he's wearing the like biker garb for the first yeah. part of the movie, and then eventually he's. I remember saying like me and Lava are watching it, and I said, I'd like to see what he looks like in like a normal outfit. And then in a few a few scenes after that, he's just kind of lounging around in what I guess was a normal outfit, which was these like long shorts and like flip flops and like this weird button up shirt. And I was like, oh, that is somehow worse. <laughs> so the whole, the whole time, like every time he was on screen, like I thought, like I said, he was a completely, you know, fine role. He, he, his acting was fine. But every time I'd see him, I would just be like, ugh, this fucking guy. Uh, here's a little trivia for you. There's an actor in Aaron Brockovich named Jamie Harold um, who's in a movie we have talked about on this podcast very recently. Can can you guess which movie it is that he is in? Jamie Harold. Wow, they're, they're not even on this cast list I'm looking at. <laughs> who do they play so he plays the guy who's like doesn't do a very good job in his performance in aaron brockovich uh he's the guy at the utilities company oh, where she is yeah. obtaining the records so like horny dude that's like yeah trying to make his hair look all nice um yeah see i saw him and i was it was like this is the most 90s looking man he had like the the plaid pants and yeah. like that guy is in the last winter. He's really? like the the scientist or one of the scientist people. Um, he's is, is I, it's the guy whose nose keeps bleeding. Oh, like the nerd scientist who dies yeah, yeah, when yeah. nose bleed. Yeah. Oh yeah, we didn't even talk about that guy. That's like how little of an impact he had in that film. And he's honestly that was a. Uh, it sort of stood out in Aaron Brockovich how bad his or like how overdone that little scene was where he was getting all horny when she came in. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, hey, check out my boobs. And he's like, yes, ma'am. 
Yeah. And then she gives him or she gives her he gives her all of the records. Um, yes. Which is that that's sort of like. I don't know. I kind of enjoyed that that twist in the narrative where they get a lot of their information from public records that are widely available. And all it took was like the fact that no one gives a shit about public records. So we let some like random doofus run the office. Yeah. And that just yeah. like backfires in the in the big company's face. It's like the power of the lone doofus. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there was something I really appreciated about this movie was just the strict sort of formalism. It's like not flashy at all. It's just completely about the story. You know, it's mm-hmm. like Soderbergh is not showing off in any way. There's no winks. There's no special trick shots. You know, it's just you get sucked up in the story and you stay with it and you care about the characters. Um, yeah, yeah, it's just sometimes it's nice to just see a straight story. Yeah, there, there's a lot of focus on uh, like facial reactions, like reactions mm-hmm. in general. There's, And I'm thinking specifically of like, and this was kind of a weird scene, but when they're in the office and I think it's maybe when Aaron comes in and like demands a job and they cut to the, the other secretary who's like the mm-hmm. one black person working in the whole office. And she mm-hmm. makes sort of like a, like a stereotypical kind of like, mm-hmm kind of face, <laughs> yeah. um, which, you know, is a little weird that that was put in there, but there's a lot of those scenes like the other secretary who Aaron's always like talking shit to. And I can't rem- like, I don't know the actress's name, but she's in a ton of stuff. The red haired lady. Yeah. Her probably her best role was in Mr. Deeds. Yeah, is like the owner of the bar yeah. or whatever it is, pizza place. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has the fight with Winona Ryder. It's weird. Yeah. That, it's weird what I remember. I'll probably like that'll be the last thing I think of before I die. Uh, but you get a lot of those like shots where the camera will just like hang on somebody and you get to see them react to something, which is you know it's not like super long shots, but it's. There's not a lot of like quick cuts or anything. You sort of get to see how people are reacting in a situation, which is, is kind of nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's one of those movies where you, you could see, uh, like you're saying, a lot rides on the performances. You could like read this script and be like, oh, that's an interesting subject, but uh this is a movie about, you know, people talking about a crime mm-hmm. and it, it's sort of that problem of, uh, like Rob Nixon, we've talked about Rob Nixon and slow violence and, and how a lot of environmental problems are sort of categorically unspectacular. Um, and so they're hard to rally behind and, um, and this is a great example of that where it's just um, systemic and, you know, the result of a bureaucratic policy. It's not, it, it's a crime, but it's a, it's a crime on paper that then gets sanctioned and implemented into reality. Uh, it's not someone, you know, stabbing someone in the back, uh, yeah. literally. Yeah. So, so it's, it's hard. It seems like it would be hard to get a movie like that made and, you know, greenlit. Um, but I guess if you get Julia Roberts to sign on to it, it's going to get made. 
Yeah. And the, like what you're saying, the fact that the people win in the end, I think is a big motivating factor as well. Because if this is just like another one of those stories where the people get steamrolled and they pay them all like $500 or whatever, it's maybe not as, <laughs> maybe doesn't have as much uh, star power attached to it. Uh, but yeah, maybe not. It'd be more of uh, like a 2020 expose as opposed to a Hollywood film. Yeah. It was weird at the end thinking, um, you know, when Aaron Brockovich gets this check for $2 million and these people she's been helping, you know, she tells them they're going to be getting $5 million. And it, it's, it was very strange thinking about Julia Roberts doing this because it's like it's so believable because it's so well done. But just because Julia Roberts is this, you know, multimillionaire movie star, it just felt kind of strange for her to be pretending to be excited about two million dollars. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, it's just uh, I don't that doesn't mean anything. It's just I was for whatever reason thinking about that. I was like how strange it would feel for her to have to pretend that $2 million is like a ton of money, which it is, but for her, it's not really, you know, she probably, I don't know what she brings in for a, what are, you know, she's getting a billion dollars for homecoming every episode, like you said. So I was actually uh, looking because, um, I don't remember where I saw it somewhere on Wikipedia. Yeah, here we go. says, uh, her fee to act in, or what she earned for Pretty Woman was $300,000, apparently. And it says in 2003, she was paid an unprecedented $25 million for her role in Mona Lisa's Smile. In 2017, her estimated net worth was $170 million. Wow. And that's before Homeland, not Homeland, Homecoming paid her, you know, however many million per episode. Yeah. Yeah, it, it feels like uh, on some level, I don't... When when did Ocean's Eleven come out? Was that 99 or 2000? That is a good question. I, I can't remember if that came before Aaron Brockovich. I suspect it did. It, it seems was like... 2001. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Because um, I, I just sort of remembered that Julia Roberts was in that. Yeah, and she's in 12 too, right? Yeah. 13. Is she in both of those? I don't know. Yeah, she plays herself <laughs> at one point. Yeah. So it's so it gets really meta in the middle there where Tess realizes that she looks like Julia Roberts and so then has to pretend to be Julia Roberts. Yeah. Very bandersnatch. <laughs> yeah. Um but <clears throat> yeah, the the you know the ending where the settlement that the people get and the people of Hinkley, this little town, uh, they get $333 million and the Jensen's, the family she's that we sort of have been following most closely, uh, get 5 million, which is like a lot. Don't get me wrong. Like that's great, but it kind of, it, it made me kind of question the conclusion of the movie because you know, I keep saying the people won, and as far as the the settlement and the case goes, they did, and they got PG and E to uh, admit wrongdoing and pay out all this money, which is great. But then it just kind of like made me think that the only way that these kinds of corporations get held accountable is through these kind of monetary rewards, just like large sums of money. 
and that does so little to sort of <laughs> help clean up or you know uh abate well, and the, these and the dam- the damage is done yeah. i mean these people have cancer you know mm-hmm. it's like you can you can uh put a band-aid on it with with a a check but like the damage is done yeah it's a it's a small victory if if a victory at all yeah and there's a i I keep bringing up the laundromats because now these movies are like linked in my head but there's a a good scene in the laundromat where meryl streep is this character that's kind of her husband dies because of this kind of negligence and the insurance company refuses to sort of or there's no one to sue because the insurance company was a show company in the the caribbean and all this sort of stuff and she spends the whole movie kind of like going around trying to like solve it on her own and ultimately she can't do anything because she's just one you know old woman that can't solve anything and so there's a scene where she's sitting in a church and you kind of get her inner monologue and she's just talking to god and she's like that part about the meek inheriting the earth like when is that coming like when's that going to happen when will the the last be first um and eventually gets to the point where she's like it would just be really nice if they would say that they're sorry and mean it and then she also adds like and if they could go to jail that would be great too but uh just this idea like there's so little that can be done after something like this chromium spill that was covered up like at that point there's like literally nothing you can do except pay these people uh, these large sums of money that they they're deserving of without question, but it does so little to really fix the problems, quote unquote. Yeah, I, I did that thought sort of crossed my mind at the end where it's like, um, you know, we, uh, how good we feel feels a little bit. Maybe we're being tricked a little bit. Um, it's like, yes, you're glad that they got this money, but like I said, it doesn't really fix the fact that they're sick. It certainly helps them deal with the fact that they're sick. Um, but the idea that the solution to this problem is that, that these people have money is uh, um, not enough at all. It has to be ensured that this uh, not only won't, but can't happen again. Yeah. And it kind of, it makes me think of the, the name of the movie, right? So the name of the movie is Aaron Brockovich. It's about Aaron Brockovich, Julie Roberts, like one of the biggest movie stars in the world is playing her. Uh, and it's a lot of ways about her kind of dedication and her hard work and, and all that sort of stuff and how she gets the job done in the end and all that sort of stuff. When really like this film shouldn't be about her at all necessarily necessarily right it should the focus should be on these people and hinkley that have lost loved ones or the mrs jensen who's like had every type of cancer and has had like a hysterectomy and had a mastectomy and all this sort of stuff um but they're kind of lesser characters and it's part you know part of the problem with narration and storytelling is you have to have some sort of like focal point to sort of direct people's attention um but it to focus like only on Aaron Brockovich's sacrifices which is like less time with her kids which is a real thing but 
these people are, like you said, they're dying. Like they have terminal illnesses that this money's not going to fix. If I had to guess, I'd say the, the rationale on the part of the filmmakers is that people are not going to watch this movie unless it has some sort of identifiable, um, you know, leading character that everyone can empathize with. And, and, and you care about, uh, Aaron Brockovich for all these reasons that you care about any sort of protagonist, you know, she's hardworking. Um, she doesn't take shit. Um, and so because we care about her for the same reason we care about all kinds of leading ladies, um, we also get exposed to this political issue. Whereas if we were just watching a documentary, you know, we might, we'd be less inclined to, to know about these issues because we're less likely to watch a documentary because we watch movies to care about characters and identify with them and feel good at the end. And this movie does that. And, you know, alerts you to these corporate, uh, you know, disasters. Yeah. You know, that's a good point. If you watch a documentary about the same event, like you said, first off, most people won't watch it. And then second off it, if they do, they'll be like, yeah, it's a little boring. Like, Oh, that sucks about those people, but not the most exciting film in the world. So it's good to have, you know, something to bring attention and, and you wonder like with, with Soderbergh what his sort of, you know, if he has a, an agenda here and if, if so, how equally is it distributed between, you know, this story about sort of uh, a woman and a man's, you know, un, un being oppressed by this sort of uh, male dominated world uh and how and how much he's really interested in the environmental injustice uh, or like I said, is it both equally? Uh, because it seems like he uses this kind of recognizable story, kind of underdog. Um, what do you call it? David and Goliath kind of thing. Um, but he uses it in a very specific way to to illuminate a very specific environmental issue. Yeah. Sorry, I had a thought, and then it kind of like left my head. <laughs> so I was, uh, I was like thinking about. It. I was like, oh, that's that's kind of interesting, and then it, it just kind of uh, left as I was listening to. Um, I thought the computer like shut down or something. No, no, I was trying to, I was trying to <laughs> recapture the magic there for a second. Yeah, maybe it'll come to me later. Um, but yeah, this this kind of. Um, these people we meet in Hinckley and in, in this environmental catastrophe. And, um, Oh, I, I kind of remember what it was. Now you're talking about how the, the, there's this whole like undercurrent in the film of the kind of gender dynamics and, and mm-hmm. uh, Aaron Brockovich, the whole movie sort of, um, playing against that or sort of like struggling against that and usually succeeding through just like, sheer force of will. And this is another thing I want to mention about the movie. This is the thing I was trying to remember um, is that a big part of the movie is that it, it has this kind of belief in a sort of meritocracy that if you 
do the work and you do it well, then everything will work out. Because Aaron Brockovich literally comes from having nothing, like the $16 in her bank account or whatever, um, is able to sort of wedge her way into a job at this law firm. And then through sheer determination and just sort of rabid hard work, she's able to become basically like almost a partner in this law firm and gets her own fancy office and gets this $2 million bonus. And in real life, she's still out doing these kinds of cases. And, you know, you can't, I'm not, I'm not going to say like she's undeserving or anything because that's not true. And she's fighting the good fight in a lot of different ways. But I think it's sort of like, I don't know, there's something about a story in which the main character sort of succeeds through this kind of like old school version of the American dream where you just keep working and then eventually things will work out when that's like very rare. And maybe that's why we make movies about those sorts of things. It's kind of like right. the, the pursuit of happiness that Will Smith movie with sort of the same thing yeah. um, or not the same thing, but you know, similar kind of situation of like working and working and eventually it pays off because um, happiness is wealth. Yeah. And the only way to get there is through, uh, subjugating yourself to whatever kind of work your employer is asking you to do until you, but you know, and Aaron Brockovich is kind of twisted on its head a little bit because the work she's doing is good and beneficial and helping people. Uh, but at the same time, it's sort of this idea that like, I don't think there, I don't think many Aaron Brockoviches would be allowed to exist. If that makes sense. Yeah. One thing uh, I wanted to say though, is that it seems like, the film wants you to notice that she is fulfilled by the nature of the work uh, before they win the case. You know what I'm saying? It's only because she is fulfilled by the work that she puts all her energy and time into it um, so that she can, you know, the, so that they can win. Um, uh, and, and I really like that sort of message of she, you know, she, like she says to Aaron Eckhart's character, you know, she's sick of arranging her life based on the, the desires of the men around her. Um, and it's, I just think it's a, a rare thing in a popular movie to hear someone say that there is a realm of happiness that exists outside of the sort of romantic narrative or the domestic bliss narrative. Um, and I think it's a good story to, you know, a, a good character to show there are, uh, there are realms of fulfillment outside of, you know, finding your soulmate which is what like 80 percent of movies are about yeah or you know getting your big <clears throat> financial break which i mean that happens in this f film too but just to, to sort of go back to this comparison with the pursuit of happiness where the work he's doing is just sort of like utter bullshit he's like a stockbroker right well yeah but he gets fired from that right and ends up with a um it, what ends up sort of bringing them out of homelessness is he has a unpaid internship that turns into a job i think or yeah. he's like trying to sell that machine i don't remember what it was kind of like an overhead projector um so well, he, the, well that's what he's doing at the beginning but then he quits that that's the dead end job yeah and then he gets this internship and then eventually gets 
given he, he the becomes, job. That's, I thought he was like trying to become a stockbroker. Well, maybe, but it, it's not necessarily fulfilling work, you know? Yeah, but it, yeah. But, yeah, you totally. know, mi- mitigating circumstances of like he's homeless, so he has to do something, right? Um, but yeah, I think that's a good point that, that you were making that it's not just that she's working her ass off and like has everybody's phone number memorized and all that sort of stuff, but it's a kind of work that she's not doing it because, well, I mean, she's partly doing it because she needs to support her family, but she's also doing it because it's the right thing to do. Right. And she's getting something out of helping these people. And at the end, when she um, takes Aaron Eckhart's character, whose name escapes me, George to, um, meet mrs jensen when she's going to tell her about the the money she's going to be getting and it's sort of like the big payoff for her to show this guy who she hasn't been able to sort of fully explain why she's doing this work mm-hmm. or she's been able to explain it but you know it's hard to sort of he can't really on. understand the the magnitude of the of what she's working yeah. on and then he sees it in action and sees Mrs. Yeah. Jensen and that actress in that, that scene who's playing Mrs. Jensen's just like, knocks yeah, out the she's, she's great in that. Um, and you see him, it's just kind of funny. It like, cuts to Aaron Eckhart and he's got this like big goofy smile. <laughs> um, but it, you know, it's a sort of representation of like, this is, this is what I was like. The $2 million is great, but this was the reason I was working so hard. I kept thinking that when Aaron Eckhart, when George leaves, I thought he was going to like be at a bar or something and like meet someone that Aaron has helped or like is in the process of helping. And he was going to realize what a selfish bastard he was, but that didn't happen at all. Hop on his hog and go right back (laughs) to her. Yeah. Um, Apparently, like, I don't know if this is supposed to be the same guy that I don't know if Aaron Eckhart's character is like a real person or not based on a real person. But Aaron Brockovich was in real life, was married a third time, got married in the late 90s and then got divorced for a third time in 2012. So, yeah, I saw her last name is was Brockovich Ellis in the credits for this movie for her cameo. So. So, yeah, there's that. She's she's a a fascinating individual, <laughs> like yeah. Unironically, find her life fascinating. Apparently now she's like working with uh, similar cases, like in Australia, mm. which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um. But the, there's uh, something in this film that I think is worth bringing up, and it kind of plays into this idea of this this slow violence. And it's how the people of Hinkley, even though they have this slow violence sort of taking its toll on them, they're kind of reluctant to see it for for what it is, to see it as like something that's been enacted upon them by a careless corporation. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's kind of interesting to see that because you would think they would be more pissed off. But when she meets the Jensen's, Mrs. Jensen is kind of like not clueless, but sort of like. Well, they told us it was fine. And they Naive. Paid, yeah, they paid for our medical bills, and that was really nice. It's right. like, uh, why would they do that? If Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's so. just, yeah, it's naivete where, you know, she, one of her reasons for, for one of Aaron's questions is just, oh, they told us, you know, yeah, yeah. They, they came to the house and they told us this. So, it, um, yeah, it's just this. It gives a pamphlet. This, yeah, naive belief that people tell the truth 
and and there's a sort of um, the scene where she meets the the guy that's initially kind of creepy, but it turns out that he has these documents he wants to give her. That twist got me. Like, it's it a good for real twist. Got me. I thought yeah. this guy was. I thought he was going to be the guy that like called that night. You know, yeah, with the creepy too. message. No, they got me. But in uh, Julia Roberts's uh, reaction, and she like runs out of the the bar like holy shit, holy shit. Um, but that guy uh, talking about his nephew i think who was cleaning the tanks and he would have like a surgical mask on and his nosebleeds would be so bad they'd be like red from the blood Mm -hmm. coming out of his nose um and i don't just kind of like it it made me think of of similar kinds of stories specifically it kind of reminded me of like coal mining where it's this profession um that's incredibly you know designed to sort of crush the workers and and it's really dangerous in both a physical sense of like you could be killed and also over the long term, it will kill you if you do it long enough, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and people say, well, why don't they do something else? And the answer was always, what else is there to do? Like it's either this or you go make a quarter of the money at Walmart or less or whatever. Um, so in this is sort of like the people of Hinkley uh, gave me a similar kind of, of, of vibe of, okay, well, if this, if they are all, if they all have these illnesses and they all have these chronic nosebleeds, like why don't they, you know, burn this place to the ground? It's like, well, it's seems to be kind of the only show in town. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot going on in Hinkley. Um, yeah, these these corporations become so integral to a community, it, you just can't even really think to question them because, you know, these are this is the source of everyone's livelihood. Uh, yeah, I, I can see where it would be a uh, a very difficult thing, like you know the the parable of the the fish in the water. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know the young fish don't from know the, what water is because it's what they've been swimming in their whole lives. From the the book of David Foster Wallace. <laughs> yes, it, it kind of reminded me of a even though a different situation in October Sky when yeah you know, and promised land all, yeah, all those sort of extractive uh, uh resource stories yeah although this is i don't really know like and this is something that i don't blame the movie for because you can lose a lot of people when you start getting into the weeds but i don't really know what pg and e does like i'm not sure what the chromium's for <laughs> like like they mention kind of what it does but you don't come out of the film like with this really great understanding of exactly what they're doing. Um, but it's not, they're a gas and electric company. So they're doing something related to utilities, I would assume. Um, yeah, they, there's a brief explanation where she has like the old picture of the, the complex, you know, and mm -hmm. she's explaining like, Oh, they put the excess water over here, but then it was something about like the, proper regulate or proper uh like landscaping wasn't done to where the water was just seeping down into the yeah, ground the, the, like the pond like a runoff pond or something wasn't yeah wasn't lined correctly or something um yeah. but i just bring that up because i think it's interesting that in things like promised land and in october sky those are these like industries that are involved at the point of extraction where pg e seems like it's a utility company Mm-hmm. That's you know, 
giving people or like helping people receive electricity and gas and, and sort of being a mediator and not really I don't know if they do the extracting of the gas themselves or what's going on with that but to show that it doesn't have to be some sort of like traditionally nefarious business right it can be something as trivial as a gas and electric company that, that you don't really think of as having the capacity to do, to do something like that yeah um something that really stood out to me in the movie was when the is, is it the jensen's that the family is that their name denson mm-hmm. jensen the jensen's yeah uh, when the the wife uh receives a a really bad uh prognosis and you see the husband is outside and you can see the the plant in the distance it's like you know maybe a couple football fields away um and it's like the sun is setting and he's just like screaming into the void at at this plant and it's that part really affected me because usually these stories are just like you know, stories like this are so abstracted and theoretical and bureaucratic. And I mean, and it is, you know, it is about bureaucracy, but when it gets down to it, it's just about these places, you know, these actual material locations where, where this shit goes down. And and it's very easy if you've never been involved in something like this to kind of, you know, acknowledge, Oh, this is fucked up theoretically. But like, I just can't even imagine. I really like the part too, where as soon as uh, Miss Jensen uh, f- find uh, hears that the PG and E might be responsible for this, she just runs and gets the kids out of the pool. Yeah. It's like has this like you get this like theoretical framework, and then that has an immediate practical implication. Get out of the fucking pool, uh, yes. and it just really makes it real. Yeah. And it's, it, it, it kind of, I'll come back to, to the scene of the, the guy because I want to talk about that for a second. But um, it's a thing that's like, it's in the groundwater. Like it's in the water that you use for everything, right? Like yeah. anytime you go to the bathroom, cook anything, swimming pool, whatever you're doing. Um, and it makes it so like terrifying. So like the, the where I grew up, they did a study and it came out when I was like, in high school or something. And they're like, Oh, by the way, for the past 20 years or whatever, there's been this chemical in the water and it's like not super toxic, but it's not good for you, but we're taking care of it. (laughs) It's like, Oh, cool. And you know, occasionally we would get like a boil water advisory and stuff like that, where it's like, you're not supposed to use the water from the sink for however long until they tell you, but it's like, even then, how do you know that it's really good for you? And it's kind of like, and then like all the stuff that happened in Flint, which is a different sort of, um, you know, travesty, but still when it's about a basic human need like water, it becomes sort of ever more pressing. And now with, uh, climate change come full circle, um, we are running into the problem where like, it's not that the water we have is poison, which is still an issue in a lot of places, but it's that the water is just not there. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it kind of makes you think of like, that's something that's so pervasive of, you know, we, t- I talk a lot, I bring up, bring up the William T. Volman thing of like, 
writing to someone in the future and saying in my time I could flip the switch and the light would come on. Well, it's like yeah. in my time I could turn on the sink and water would come out and I could drink that water. And was- We had whole toilets just for your butthole, <laughs> you know, to get a little spritz. There's a, I, I want to say it's like Greg Fitzsimmons, you know that guy, the comedian? Uh, it sounds familiar. Kind of like redheaded dude. Um, I think it was like a comedy special he had, which was like not great, but he had this joke of like, you have the like someone coming to America that's never been there, or like from an alien or something, and being like, "What is this pristine porcelain bowl full of this crystal clear water?" And it's like, "Oh, I shit in that, not flush it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so that kind of stuff. Anyway, uh, the the scene you're talking about of uh, Mr. Jensen, he's like throwing, and I can't remember if it was Mr. Jensen or if it was the uh, the. Uh, or maybe this is the same family. I don't remember, but the the father of the young girl who has yeah, cancer yeah. is undergoing treatment. But is that scene because he's like, like you said, he's screaming kind of off into the distance, sort of in the direction of this facility. But he's also like throwing rocks, throws a couple yeah. of rocks at it. And it kind of gave me that that sort of classic idea of uh, throwing rocks at the temple, sort of thing. Mm. Um, it was a great. Um, line in the open boat by Stephen Crane where it's like they all wanted to throw bricks at the temple but there were no bricks and there was no temple <laughs> that, that kind of thing it reminded that scene reminded me of a very quick scene in first reformed remember where he's uh Toller's just like out looking at some uh it's like as the sun is coming up or going down I can't remember and he's just sort of ruminating over this wasteland um, I, I want to say you used that picture for something, maybe a syllabus. Yeah, I, made, or I made a syllabus for a, a class that I've never taught. <laughs> uh, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, just that uh, looking out into the void as the sun goes down against this uh, sort of uh, you know, sort of monster in the distance. Yeah, uh, the sort of scenes of of it's like corporate malfeasance, but it's also, it always kind of goes deeper than that where it's like, this is a, a failure of nature on the part of humanity, you know, like it's sort of a conspiracy against the planet. <laughs> that kind of thing. It gives me that kind of feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause it's easy enough to look at it and be like, Oh, it's a shame what that, what that company did to that pond or whatever. But it's another thing to be like, this is treason. This is like high crimes and misdemeanors against planet earth. Oh man, it's like I, I heard some numbers about the Amazon the other day, uh, and it was some. I mean, I can't remember what the number was, but it was in the millions of dead animals. Yeah, Australia like, too. Yeah. You don't really think about. I mean, I mean, just millions of animals just burned to death. Yeah, it's it's sickening. Uh, to think about and, th- and that's a good point because we talk about it and i think rightfully so we focus on sort of plant life uh, because that's what's burning and all that but there, there's also this fact that like all life is being destroyed it's not like it's you know if we're so fond of you know monkeys or whatever well they're being burnt up too and koalas kangaroos and, and you just you know yeah people talk you know people 
your dog dies and you, you know, people cry for one animal when, you know, it's kind of arbitrary what we label a pet and what we allow into our home. And it's like, I don't know. It just feels, uh, uh, much more grievable than people are the, the loss of all these animals feels to me a lot more grievable than the way people are talking about it. Yeah. And it's, I, it's, I don't know. One of the things that's more or less preventable, <clears throat> you know, like there will, I guess there will always be some sort of level of fire in a forest of that size, but nothing like what's going on now. Um, where you have this perfect storm of climate change and government policy and greed and hubris and everything lining up. I had this really uh, anxiety-inducing thought the other day where I realized it, it's like the stuff of a, a sort of uh, mediocre novel or movie where at the same time, that the Amazon rainforest is burning to the ground. Uh, the corporation named Amazon is like becoming bigger and more powerful than ever. And it's just sort of like this shitty uh, parallelism that like, like I said, a sort of mediocre novelist might use. And it just like really freaked me out. <laughs> just like the, the coincidence of that just kind of like, bothered me in a deep deep way it's like it's almost like something kurt vonnegut would use in a novel it's like a vonnegut vonnegutian thing or like <laughs> terry gillum or something like that where it's like in the future when you say amazon the first thing that'll come in somebody's mind is the internet company and, and the oh, it's, will be like it's a, already that's already memory. here yeah um which is i mean people pay however much for prime subscriptions but they don't want to I don't know, man. Let's not talk about it. <laughs> I'm a little bummed about the Amazon tonight because my cat, the my one of my cats is very sick, and I'm I'm worried about the guy, and I'm taking it out on the rainforest. <laughs> no, yeah, I understand. Uh, anyway, Aaron Brockovich, uh, <laughs> from from 2000. No animals. And Aaron Brockovich. No, no animals. Plenty of kids, though. Um, but I do like, I kind of like, you know, we're talking about Aaron Brockovich just being this kind of like, the character being this kind of a mediary, sort of being the, the person that we identify with. And because of that, it makes what could have been, like we said before, kind of a stuffy uh, kind of procedural law movie. Uh, into something that's more kind of heartfelt and focused on, on the people. And I really appreciated the uh, sort of in the middle where they bring in the new guy, the, the new lawyer who's like high powered, has a, a better practice, has more money, all that sort of stuff. And they're, they're mm -hmm. going to arbitration and Aaron Brockovich keeps making this point of you can't, explain it to these people in the way that you're explaining it because it's not going to first off it sounds horrible if you explain it that way and second off they're they might not understand kind of the intricacies of it because it's you know it's complicated like even aaron doesn't really 
necessarily understand all of it because she doesn't have a law background. And so you get that really great um, kind of town hall scene where it's her, it's her boss, um, yeah, yeah. you know, giving this sort of address to the people and he eventually has to boil it down to, you know, I don't get any money if we lose. Plus if you don't do this now, you're going to be waiting forever maybe. And a lot of you don't have time, uh, which is like, for one, it underlines how deeply intrinsically shitty the American law system is and how it, uh, you know, corporations are people with, you know, never ending rights and this sort of thing. Um, but also kind of like focuses on this other thing I was talking about where it, it takes something that is like a very complicated uh, sort of legal thing and boils it down into terms that are sort of easier to understand. So on the part of the, the, uh, the screenwriter, forget her name. Um, Susanna Susanna. Grant. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's weird. I remember that. (laughs) Who's, uh, you know, she's done a few other things. Um, The soloist is maybe the only Mm. one on here I've seen. Uh, Pocahontas. She wrote Pocahontas. There you go. Uh, but yeah, just the, the way that it's presenting in the sense of, uh, in a, in a way that we were saying the movie kind of does with the whole thing of, of presenting the, the human side of it, as opposed to this like deeply legal, complicated side of it, which is, well, it's almost, it's almost like with this issue of audience, it's like the movie is kind of preaching diegetically what it's practicing non-diegetically. You know, like Soderbergh is using the kind of techniques that Aaron Brockovich is talking about. Like, we're not going to give a shit about this movie and all that it implies unless we understand, you know, we have this character to empathize with and, you know, act as a sort of tour guide for these for these issues. The same way these uh, the clients are not going to get on board unless they have some sort of. um understandable and meaningful narrative to uh you know to sign on to yeah and so you know that's i will say i think we would agree that we had never seen this movie before but i think we would agree that we we like it you seem to it was have enjoyed it was very good i i really liked it i liked it kind of more than i thought i would and like i said a part of that is painted by having been alive when it came out and like i said all that anybody talked about was Julia Roberts looking hot in it and like all this sort of stuff. Um, it even made the, uh, made the song that lonely Island song with uh, Michael Bolton mm-hmm. where he's like the movie freak, you know, he keeps singing about Jack Sparrow, but mm-hmm. then there's one little, there's a Aaron Brockovich shout out. Cool. Yeah. So <laughs> that's when you know you've made it. Yeah. Uh, but I think we would agree that the movie is, is, is very good. And that's because it is successful at, at packaging this thing that is deeply complex in a way that is making it well, presenting it like, this is not difficult, right. To, to sort of realize who the, who is the bad guy here. And it's kind of reflected at the end when her boss uh, is, is sort of, you know, punking her a little bit. And gives mm-hmm. her a check and it's like, I had to change it. And she says something that's kind of like a throwaway line, but it, it kind of encapsulates the whole message of the movie, I think, where she says, that's the problem with you lawyers is you make everything so complicated when it's not. 
mm-hmm. that's kind of like the whole message of the movie of like this is not a complicated issue. This company has irrevocably wronged these people in ways that were fatal and they have to suffer some kind of consequence. Kind of full stop. Right. And and everything beyond that is just an ironing out of the details. Um yeah, um, I I hadn't really, as I was watching it, I hadn't really considered it as, as much. But now that we're sort of fleshing this out, it's like I really like this sort of, you know, I want to say early in our in our podcast project, we, we kept problematizing like the issue of audience, especially with our discussion of mother and things like that. And I believe last week with the last winter, we kind of said, who is this for? Mm-hmm. Um and I think we can agree that Aaron Brockovich is pretty much for everyone. It's for the people. You know, there's, I, I, it doesn't really seem to exclude anyone in its like demographic appeal. Um, I, I can see where maybe like a 14 year old boy wouldn't care, you know, um, but like it's a, it's a compelling story. E- even if you don't give a shit about like environmental uh, destruction or, uh, you know, w- women's, uh, you know, equality because, because it's just a compelling story, but because it's a compelling story, you are forced to enter into some level of discourse with environmental destruction and, uh, women's rights. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you, you said that because it's kind of, to, to think of this as an environmental movie, and maybe this is why I didn't think of it for the podcast in the first place, it's kind of, it, it's really easy to sort of get to that point once you've seen the movie, but like having not seen it, I had trouble kind of making that leap because of all these kind of preconceived notions. And also the fact that the movie itself is not really concerned with being in an, a quote unquote environmental movie. Um, and it's it's interesting that it kind of mirrors the way in which Aaron gets involved in the whole case where she's looking at this real estate case and it's like, why does it have all these medical documents? And then she sort of, you know, gets to the next step and the next step. And then eventually it becomes this whole, you know, case, this huge case with all these people. Um, so in the same way, it kind of like steps you slowly, like baby steps you into like environmental concerns, but the film yeah. is never fully about that. It's about the people and sort of the, these power dynamics and those big kinds of questions that Soderbergh seems to really enjoy. Um, but you kind of, by necessity, have to consider the sort of environmental side of it to get the whole picture of what's going on. Right. And you're, you, uh, I think as an audience member, you're outraged by the unfairness. Um, and you see, you see the negative effects of whatever's, occurred before you find out the reason for it. So you are primed to hate whatever, you know, whoever did this to them. And it just so happens it's this, you know, corporation who's poisoning the land, poisoning the water. Um, so, so in terms of a, a rhetorical strategy, I think it's, it's on point. Yes. Um, and you know, it's, uh, you can problematize any film, right? We could sort of, if we wanted to really go in on it, we could be like, well, you know, 
Aaron is a able-bodied, attractive white woman, so of course she can force her way into this position. You know, you can do all sorts of like I said. Like I, I thought it'd be better if if uh, Aaron Brockovich <laughs> were were a man. If it was Aaron you know? Eckhart, right? If it was A A R O N Brockovich. Uh, but you know, being, you can. What, oh, what is it? What? oh, being Aaron Brockovich. I was <laughs> trying to make a Malkovich joke. Um, so you know, you can do all that sort of, all that sort of thing, but I think on its surface to be what it is, which was like a major Hollywood production, Julia Roberts wins best actress, Soderbergh's nominated for best director, all this sort of stuff. Um, it got nominated for best picture. I think I read. Yeah. And w- with traffic and then traffic one, right. Yeah. yeah. Which is like, a, you know, big achievement for Soderbergh, but um, to be this major film that, that you said is basically for everybody, like designed for this mass audience. Um, you know, I, I can't really fault it for trying to give you some form of hope in the face of uh, situations like the one in the film. It's yeah. just kind of like a feel-good and, and, and thing. Like, it just sort of works out that it's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, that, and that's the big thing, right? Yeah, that this actually happened. Uh, you know, for once, the, the little guy uh, didn't win because they still got you know, terminal illnesses, but got some form of justice. Yeah. I like, yeah. Ju- like it's, that's what I've learned as I've, I thought about this when I was watching the movie, like as I've, I've gotten older, like one of the things in a movie or a TV show that can make me cry is justice. <laughs> like just righteous justice. When it happens, I'm just like, Oh my God, like tear up a little bit. Like the scene that we've talked about a little bit already when they, when she tells, Mrs. Jensen, you're going to be getting $5 million and you'll be financially fine and your daughters will be fine and their daughters will be financially fine. And she starts crying. I was just like on the verge of tears myself of like, oh my God, this, it's just such like a relief of like, finally, like the right person got justice. Yeah. 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 That's, that's a powerful scene for sure. Yeah. And, and, it, and like, like we said, it doesn't hurt that that the actress uh playing miss uh jensen is is great in that scene especially yeah so if you talk about like we've done a lot of films with sort of ambiguous endings so going back for instance to like first reformed which is you know a pretty heady kind of ambiguous ish ending that you can interpret it in a lot of different ways um this is sort of thinking about it from like a, a narrative standpoint this is, you know, a world's removed away where it's cut and dry of like the black hats and the white hats, but in the best kind of way. And that's why it's so sort of easily digestible. And it kind of, you walk away from that movie kind of feeling good about the world, at least mm-hmm. for a little bit, which is, is, is not something to be discounted. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. It's you, you come away thinking the good fight is worth fighting. Yeah. It's difficult and they're going to be, you know, moments where you're going to want to quit or it's going to seem hopeless, but it's worth doing because when it pays off, it's, you know, ultra cathartic, mm-hmm. um, which I, you know, as I said, as opposed to like the big short and the laundromat, which is just sort of like, it's kind of like you go to pop your fingers and they don't. <laughs> and you're like, ah, oh. yeah, the sort of, uh, yeah, those, those the big short is kind of depressingly honest mm-hmm. um, but but has its 
you know, has an agenda in, in being a good agenda. I think in being that honest, it's like, Hey, we, you know, something has to be done about this or this injustice will be, you know, perpetuated. Yeah. And in, in reality, like nothing really happened and, and that kind of collapse will happen again. I was thinking it is like one of my biggest political fears is like Bernie wins, which is great, but then there's another financial collapse and he gets blamed for it. And then in right. 2024, we elect like a literal fascist. Yeah. Like Trump junior or something. No, I mean like a capable, intelligent, educated, fascist, died in the wool fascist who's like, yeah, knows what they're doing. And then, then we're in some deep shit. Yeah. Although, you know, if we go to war with Iran soon, it, it might not matter if there's a financial collapse. <laughs> yeah. And that's, um, you I know, think I'm going to start smoking. <laughs> smoke them if you got them and that's one thing it's like we've mentioned it before and we've done some like we've done military movies right am i imagining that peter berg baby peter berg yeah there we go um and we've talked about how um you know the this military industrial complex the american military is the biggest consumer of fossil fuels on the planet um most of our tax money right uh, is going to fund this war machine and all that sort of stuff um and right now you're seeing a lot of stuff that feels eerily similar uh, to 2003 um, minus 9-11, you know, um, so that that part's good. <laughs> but then everything else, you're starting to see that kind of thing start to gin it up of like, you know, this Iranian guy was was the worst person on Earth when like two hours earlier, they didn't know who the hell he was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, don't don't think for a second that there won't be some kind of retribution for what has been done. Like it's, it's going to happen. Yeah. Um, 2003 minus nine 11, just to clear things up is 1092. <laughs> thank, thank you. That's what we're, that's what, that's the name of my book. I'm going to write about this whole fiasco. 1092 tax form. Yeah, um, that's a 1098, right? I think there's there's a whole series of 1090s. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you'd know more about like complicated tax forms than I would. Oh, fuck you. Uh, <laughs> uh, Will's head. Did I issues. did I tell you? Did I tell you when I uh, registered? Just a little Prius update. When I registered the Prius, when I bought it, you know, five or six months ago. Uh, I realized I hadn't updated my uh, address at the county clerk in like four years. And when I, so I updated it. And then like two weeks later, I got my 2016 tax refund check. And it was like $800. And I was like, fucking yes. Nice. Totally unexpected. Just a check in the mail. That's pretty tight. Congratulations. Went promptly to Applebee's happy hour. <laughs> Got a hot toddy, a hot toddy and some riblets. <laughs> no, yeah. that, no, great. Cool. Anyway, I mean, it's at least they can, I mean, how much did you pay them like for years leading up to that though? Well, it, it was, it was uh, all in all, it was probably about $2,500 where like, and it's not that I, 
pay them. It's just that they took my refund for like three years in a row. And I usually get about, you know, eight or $900. Uh, so for three years in a row, they took about eight or $900 and had no reason for why it was happening. Uh, they had some very convoluted explanation that I took, you know, great pains to, uh, try to explain and, and, and unravel. And it just never got anywhere. I bet I made 50 phone calls and, you know, spoke to 10 different people. I literally, I don't know why I'm telling this like on the podcast, but (laughs) I, uh, they literally said one of the people, agents said, that's not my department. Which is That's like my job. the bureaucratic phrase. Uh, oh man, no, that sucks. Uh, and, and you know, if you were in Julie Roberts's tax bracket, it would have been like super easy. You would have paid like fifteen bucks. <laughs> it been oh. my biggest problem is like my like why do I care if my money, my taxes, go to pave roads and build schools? You know what I'm saying? It's like, I'm done with school. <laughs> that, that's what I don't get. It like, I don't know. I feel like it, this is going to sound like stupid and I don't even know if I fully believe this myself, but it's like, well, no, I do believe this part, but you know, people talk about like Medicare for all and all that. Like, how are you going to pay? We're going to have to raise taxes. And in my head, I'm like, that's fine. If you're telling me that like, I have to pay a little bit more in taxes, but then I can just go to the doctor whenever I want. Like if I have something that I like normally wouldn't have checked out because I'd be afraid it would cost like a billion dollars. That, that sounds awesome. That sounds heavenly as opposed to what it is now where it's like, I pay a little bit less in taxes, but if I go to the doctor, you got that extra walking around money for Applebee's man. (laughs) You know, really that's kind of what the contemporary American conception of freedom boils down to. Whatever lets me have a little bit of pocket money to go to Applebee's <laughs> is is good and right and patriotic. Yeah. It's just like amazing how like I'm so I, I'm kind of looking forward to it in a in a sadistic sort of way of like going to uh, these classes that I'm going to start teaching here soon and seeing what these young people think about this whole Iran thing mm-hmm. and, and seeing like I know I'm going to have students that are like very gung-ho about it uh knowing full well that they like don't have to serve (laughs) and all that sort of stuff um it's just going to be fascinating to be like well you know they're a threat to my freedom like how is a country on the other side of the world a threat to your freedom in small town alabama like what are they going to take away your applebee's I think like the American uh, mythology has shifted from apple pie to apple bees. <laughs> if I don't get my my mudslide, then that ain't freedom. My my riblets. I have gravy, <laughs> man. In gravy, I haven't eaten apple bees in like many years because it's just like, why would I? But when I was growing up. Uh, We didn't have anything like that um, nearby. And then uh, Pikeville, a town that's like 45 minutes or so from where I'm from. uh, Dude, that's where my that's where my grandfather is from. Yeah, it's like the it's the biggest city in that part of the state. And even then, it's like not very big. Uh, But they 
they were allowed to sell alcohol in restaurants, which was like a big deal because up until I was like a senior in high school, counties were like dry and some were wet. Um, and so they got an Applebee's and it was like the big deal that if you were going to like really blow it out, you would, uh, hitch up your wagon and, and drive to Pikeville and go to Applebee's. That's the saddest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, man. Small town living. <laughs> Louisiana Saturday night. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think there is something. I can't remember who I was talking to the other day about. Uh, there's something of the moment of like, I mean, especially in, in Murfreesboro where, I mean, uh, in, um, small businesses, um, independently owned restaurants cannot succeed, you know, and any attempt that's been made fails within a year or two. And then these, you know, big franchises come in like Cheddar's. Everyone lost their goddamn mind when Cheddar's came to town. It's like, it's the same (laughs) bullshit as Chili's and Applebee's and all this stuff. And it's just, um, you know, it's, it's sort of like the Taco Bell menu where there's actually like three ingredients and everything's just like a, a sort of remarketed version of the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's, there's not a lot of room for new small things and, uh, small good things. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, uh, here, everything that opens is a fucking, yeah, my joke in Murfreesboro is that if they were building something, it was going to either be a mattress store or a tire store or a car wash. Those are like the three things. Um, but here it's like if something new is opening, there's like a 80% chance it's a chicken finger restaurant. And it's so like I I went on a rant about this in the car the other day. It's like I have nothing against these places. Like I think sometimes I'll go get some chicken fingers and fries and it's just like comfort food of like I don't have to think about it. But the sort of infantilization of the American palate where like everything is something fried. It's like a fried meat with French fries and like some kind of sauce. And, uh, this place opened across the street and this place is called Fusaklis. I don't know like if that's a name or what the fuck that is. I think it's from like mobile, but it opened and it's literally, there's a chicken finger restaurant across the street from it. I have to say, and this one opened and it like fucked up traffic really bad. And I hate it more than anything, but it's always full. And I don't understand why, because the only difference it has is it has like more dipping sauces. It's like all we want as Americans is like Applebee's happy hour and dipping sauces. That's like <laughs> all that we want. Um, and it's just so, it, it's so frustrating that it's like, there was a, a Caribbean place that opened and it was really good. We only ate there once because it's like, unfortunately I can't go and eat there every day and support this place, you know, by myself or anything. But I'm pretty sure they're closing because on Facebook marketplace, they were like selling or trying to rent out the restaurant. So I guess they're going to close. Mm-hmm. And it's just like really frustrating of, of like the things that will thrive versus the things that are like infinitely better that will struggle to succeed. Um, and you know, that's not always the case, but it's just like incredibly frustrating. Like I get so angry when I like 
can't turn left out of our street because of this fucking chicken finger place. And I'm just like, look at all these fucking idiots over here getting, gotta get my chicken fingers. I gotta go get my chicken tendies before bed. I just like, ugh. It's so frustrating. Yeah, what did the uh, Anthropocene's guys uh, talk about uh, when they were <laughs> talking about Aaron Brockovich? You chicken know, finger about uh, Southeast Alabama of, chicken finger of women climate. And, uh, uh, environmental destruction. Well, they mostly ranted about chicken fingers. It seemed like, yeah, and it's just I don't know, man. I just, but still, it's kind of like how, and you'll you'll disagree with me on this, but like, I like really kind of kind of dislike Chick Fil A. Um, like all of the supporting um, sort of homophobic causes aside, well, see, I, I, see, I, I don't. It's, I don't like the food. I just really enjoy the, their politics. <laughs> well, I, I hate that every Chick-fil-A, no matter where it is, always has a line of cars around the building and like out into the street. It's like the chicken. And this is where like I lose people because I'm like the chicken's fine. <laughs> it's not the best thing in the world. It's fine. Yeah. Um, and that's where, like, I'll have people that will agree with me until I say that. And they're like, well, you know, it's, it's actually really good. I'm like, shut the fuck up. It's peanut chicken. oil. <laughs> it's fried chicken. Grow up. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I've, uh, I, I kind of feel like I've alluded to this on the podcast before, but I got, when I was much younger, I got into a serious debate with my dad about, you know, like, whether or not it was possible for a corporation, like a fast food corporation to be quote unquote Christian. And I was just like, I still stand by that. That's not possible. Just like categorically impossible. Uh, No matter what they say about themselves. I also like traditionally, like if you're going by like, (laughs) if you go by the letter of the law, no, if you're going by the spirit in like American Protestantism, yeah, sure. Why not? Right. Right. Um, and so it, it's kind of like, it's always surprising to me, like being in a, in a business that I've like never been to before. And then I hear Christian music playing and I'm like, Oh, okay. I didn't yeah. know that that was this kind of, I didn't know it was that kind of establishment. <laughs> it's kind of like the, there's that classic, uh, it, it became like a comedy trope there for a while. And maybe it still is where it's like a couple guys go to a bar and they slowly realize it's a gay bar. Yeah, that was like a thing for a while. Uh, that that's me, but with like Christian owned and operated establishments. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Like, what's the shoe store called? Uh, Marty and Marty Liz. and Liz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're in there for like ten minutes. You're like, man, this music's bad. And then you're in there for fifteen <laughs> minutes. You're like, oh, this music is Christian. <laughs> it's oh god, Christian music does suck. What's the the station called? The Rip? No, not the River. That's the classic rock thing. Uh, Way Way FM. The Way. Yeah, maybe that's it. Oh. I don't know. They're all they're all dog shit. Anyway, um, has nothing to do with Aaron Brockovich. Uh, nah, I think kinda, we checked out. Bro. I got got off track. But and it's a thing where it's like it. It's a good movie, right? It's a uh, kind of ticks all the boxes for. I mean, it didn't make me, it's part of the problem. Like it didn't make me have very many, very deep thoughts really. Uh, but I think it's got the right kind of politics. I think it's got the right kind of message. Yeah. I got the tingles a few times. Yeah. 
Um, and Teaching Miss Tangle. It does have some sort of like, uh, you know, more artistic moments. Like you said, like it's, for the most part, it's pretty straightforward and kind of like realistically shot. But then like the scene with the guy screaming at the, the factory and that kind of stuff, it has those moments. Um, yeah. I still think Traffic is a better film. Oh, yeah. Um, for a lot of reasons, but. Yeah, good stuff. I have no real qualms with the film. Ebrock. Although I will say, like, in terms of podcast movies, it's probably, like, firmly middle of the pack. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is not, you know, n- not an insult by any means. It's just that there are other things that I think were more interesting S- to me. Somewhere somewhere between Biodome and Leave No Trice. <laughs> that is kind of like the continuum that we're working on. It's like leave no trace first reform. And then like biodome is like way the fuck over on the other end. Hey, you know what we should do? Uh, we should rank, uh, in order, like worst to first, all the movies we've done and just compare lists. Yes. Let's do that next. Let's do that for next week. I mean, we'll, we'll we won't spend the whole time talking about it. Right, let's right, do right. like okay. we'll do that, and then we'll compare like bottom five and top five or something like that. Okay, I think that'd be cool. Yeah, because we were gonna do that, but what did we decide to do instead for like the the anniversary episode? Do like a like an Oscars themed thing, okay. like award yeah, show yeah. type thing. Cool. Where we each like award best actress and all that sort of stuff. And so for next week, are we going to consider like each week a film or like individual individual film? Because this is episode 42, but we've probably done like 60 movies or something Yeah, because we've done so many like the auteur episodes and uh, yeah, multiple. I think, I think we have to do individual movies because I mean, it would be, misrepresentative to you know to include meek's cutoff in <laughs> yeah with uh, certain women you know yeah and like the east because i just didn't watch it yeah that kind of stuff but uh will you know that'll be the hard part really is like getting a list of writing out a list of all the movies but once you've done that it should go pretty quickly yeah um, so yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that, uh, next week. We'll do a little, a little ranking and that'll shift and change. It might change, um, after next week. Uh, is there any, any sort of parting, parting shots with, uh, Aaron Brockovich? Uh, no. Great. Cool movie. <laughs> uh, no. Way to go, Steve. Um, yeah, uh, definitely would, would recommend it to people who have not seen it. Like I had, if you've already seen it, then you know, good on you. Good for you. Uh, so next week we're going to be doing something as a bit of a departure from our normal kind of stuff. And I say that because for one, I think this will be a really kind of excellently made movie in uh, which for the podcast, they're, they're not always that way. And also it's an older film when usually we, we tend to do newer sort of uh, 2000 and later type movies, but we're going to be doing uh, red desert El Deserto Rosso, uh, from 1964, directed by Michelangelo Antonioni. Yeah, we got this from the Criterion app, 
mm-hmm. we got the idea. It's part of a double feature. We might save the other half for another week. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know this film. You know, I've heard the director's name. I know he's he's a big deal, but uh, I don't know anything about it. I read the synopsis, and I'm intrigued. Yeah, I think it's going to be uh, – I mean, I think it will certainly be a very well-made film, like I was saying. And uh, like you're saying, I think the, the uh, little short, not even synopsis, but like premise that I read sounded very kind of fascinating. Um, so even though it's made in the 60s, I think it will have a lot of sort of reverberations – uh, to today. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. I've actually, I'm kind of like a, I've seen a lot of movies, but I wouldn't consider myself like a very well-versed film person. So I've never seen an Antonioni film. Mm. I want to say I've seen one, but I don't remember what it is. Uh, I just remember taking a film class and hearing that name over and over again. Um, I used to be more of like a film scholar guy than I am now. When I was in undergrad, I was a, a film minor and I was like super into it. And, uh, and then I started reading a lot more. <laughs> yeah, movies suck. Books are really suck. <laughs> You're like the well, only person I mean, I that's ever done that. Movies, Everybody else I, went the opposite way. Yeah, I, I, I love movies. They're my first love. But but I, uh, I, I would choose now I would choose a a good book over a good movie. Speaking yeah. of which I just finished all the pretty horses. Everybody go read that fucking book right now. Do it. Line it up. We've talked about McCarthy a lot. We should yeah. just have like the, the Cormac cast. Yeah. Pod Cormac <laughs> McCarth cast. <laughs> I would do it. I'll read the whole damn, uh, the border trilogy episode one. I need to like, uh, cause I've read like, you do, know. dude. You're slacking. You're just not reading the way you used to. You changed, man. I I got I finished my dissertation and I was like, I wonder if I could never read a book again. Um, <laughs> I just finished a book that was super long and kind of boring. <laughs> um, but I need to read like uh, I, my thing was like I read all, a lot of his early stuff and I haven't except for Sutri and so I haven't really caught up with the the later McCarthy the Border trilogy. Need yeah. to do that. Um, you read Blood Meridian, though, right? Yeah, Blood Meridian, Child of God, Outer Dark. Blood, Blood Meridian is the least readable one that I've read. Like, in, at least like enjoyable to read, but it's still amazing. It's sort of like I, I don't know. At some points, it's like you're reading like fucking incantations or something. You're just like going, and you're like, I don't even know what's happening, but it's like <laughs> I feel it in my soul. Yeah, um, yeah. So, anyway. What the fuck were we talking about? So <laughs> next week, Red next week, Desert. Red Desert, uh, Antonioni. Oh, we're talking about like being film, film yeah. people. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm the, the way I am is I'm way more likely to have seen a random nineties, terrible comedy than I am to have seen an Antonioni film. Yeah. Me too. Uh, so, Fucking saving Silverman, man. We've got to do it. So, so someone's like, Hey, uh, have you ever seen the movie Basketball? I'm like, yeah, many times, but I've never <laughs> seen an Antonioni film. Yeah, I can quote like every Jim Carrey movie, like to an alarming, even like with alarming accuracy. Even the Majestic is that what that film was, movie was called? Yeah, uh, and I actually, you know, you found my my weak spot. That's like the one I've only seen once. Your your recommendation was read All the Pretty Horses. Mine is to go see Uncut Gems. 
Ah, yeah. Because, you know, you, you've seen Punch Drunk Love, you know, like Adam Sandler is a very competent, dramatic actor. Oh, yeah. He, he's really, like, he's going for it in this movie. And for the most part, it's pretty compelling. Corey sent me a uh, link to the A24 podcast, which is a great movie podcast, podcast, podcast. And uh, it was Paul Thomas Anderson talking to the Safdie brothers uh, about Uncut Gems and Punch Drunk Love. And, uh, you know, it was quite interesting. Yeah. So I, I recommend if you're if you want to feel good and anxious and stressed out for the entire length of a movie, I'd recommend it. <laughs> yeah sound with a recommendation like that yeah i mean mccarthy books are the same way if you just want to feel like just good and bad yeah read one anyway that's all feel okay about feeling about how terrible everything is yeah that's like our alternative name for the podcast was like the sad bastard cast or something (laughs) like that uh so that's all i got yeah Done. Done. Dusted. Cut it.